Welcome to the virtual Yukam Yurt. I'm Rashid Gabdulhakov, and today I'm co-hosting the Chat in the Yurt podcast with Yelena Kilina. Together, we will keep you company through a monthly Chat in the Yurt with a conversation on Europe-Central Asia developments. Our podcast, Chat in the Yurt, uh, is produced by EUCRAM program of the Center for European Security Studies in the Netherlands. Today's podcast is dedicated to energy security. Our Yurt's guest is Raman Vakulchuk, who is a senior researcher at NUPI, which is the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. Raman specializes in Central Asia and Southeast Asia. A very warm welcome to you, Roman. Uh, thank you, Rashid. Uh, thank you, Yelena. It's a real pleasure um, to take part in your uh, chat in the yurts. I must say that I've been uh, seeing uh, previous uh, podcasts and I felt like, well, that's the fantastic name that you have for this type of the interaction. I think it's, uh, it reflects well on uh, Central Asian culture and also the maybe the ability for us to talk openly about things that relate to this topic, as you said, the energy security, which is gaining an increasing uh, importance for Central Asia. Yeah, precisely. And actually, because uh, recently you and your new colleagues uh, have been doing a lot of research regarding energy transition, especially in Central Asia. And you even published a book titled Climate Change in Central Asia, Decarbonization, Energy Transition and Climate Policy. And personally, when I read the first chapters, I was like, wow, I didn't know that Central Asia is actually one of the regions that's experiencing the higher uh, increase in temperatures. And still, there is not much done in terms of research. So we have quite some questions for you. <laughs> Uh, but let me start with the first one. Sure. Well, since the book, uh, Climate Change in Central Asia, focuses on decarbonization, energy transition, and climate policy in Central Asia, could you please explain how climate change is impacting energy, securi energy security in the region? Well, that's a very good question, and it's also a good uh, question to start with. Uh, I should say that this book uh, has become the uh, result of uh, many years of our um, work in the area of uh, uh, Central Asia studies. Uh, for many years, uh, well, actually, I started my career by focusing on broader economic issues in Central Asia and in Kazakhstan in particular. And uh, I would say, I would say over the last 10 years, I've been seeing that um, different scholars in the area of Central Asia studies have been focusing on uh, many different aspects uh, that relate to the economics, uh, politics, uh, society in Central Asia, as well as culture. But I haven't seen much research that, as you rightly said, on uh, things like climate change, uh, energy transition. Uh, and so in, in a way, this book is a reflection of uh, our personal motivation uh, to write something about this topic, to write something in a systematic and uh, profound manner so to make a solid contribution to this field. And as you rightly said, we're still wondering why Cent Central Asia scholars haven't really followed the trend and especially the fact that Central Asia is so um, vulnerable to the impact of climate change. Uh, one part maybe of the answer could be that Central Asia scholarship believed that for many years that uh, climate change is an area for natural scientists. And this is why it's not an area to work with or like to, to really be involved as much. But of course, with the increasing uh, impacts of climate change and especially some of its 
quite devastating effects, and I'll talk about those a bit later. It's increasingly uh, obvious that uh, climate change also is penetrating all the social realms. Uh, and if you're a Central Asia scholar, I think it's it's uh, it's really becoming um, um, well an imperative also to look at some of the issues that you're studying through the lens of uh, the climate change impacts. Uh, for example, one particular issue area is the water management, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that for decades, Central Asia has been struggling to find to peacefully uh, find a way to manage uh, uh, water resources. Uh, of course, we all know all the <clears throat> um, well, disputes as well as some unsolved issues that relate to the water use during, during different seasons in countries like Kyrgyzstan, uh, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. So with the uh, climate change uh, accelerating its, its path and its impact in the region, we can say that um, there'll probably be even more water shortages in the region quite soon, which will, of course, put some additional pressure on the geopolitics, on interstate relations in the region. Uh, so this is just one example. Um, also, we know that Central Asia is becoming increasingly arid. So we see uh, also the, the rising levels of desertification. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the, the, the impact on Central Asia, which is a double landlocked region in a way, uh, is, is quite different from other places in the world. Uh, but nevertheless, it still make it super vulnerable. So I can, of course, compare it with Southeast Asia, where the, the rising sea level, for example, and the frequency of natural disasters related to climate change are now more and more uh, frequent. Um, so this is quite different in Central Asia, but then Central Asia has its uh, own problems that relate to this uh, issue area. So this was all motivation for this book. And I should say maybe uh, uh, a bit about the funding side is that um, while writing this book and also before we published another article with the Central Asian Survey uh, Journal, uh, where we also um, looked at the existing literature and uh, we tried mm -hmm. to show the gaps and also strengths of this literature. Um, so, and I should say that for the both of products, uh, we didn't actually get any funding. So it also reflects that when it comes to the, also the um, funding community, so to say, or like donors, they also don't really and I'm not really interested in uh, in um, paying for research on this particular uh, issue area. So while we know that many Eurasia-focused uh, research centers, uh, well, they uh, receive funding for studies on security, on uh, the geopolitics, uh, interaction with China, mm -hmm. we couldn't really find any way to get any funding for those. So it means that we had to write those in our free time. <laughs> Well, that is very counterintuitive given the uh, significance of the topic. So if, if you were to just in a nutshell outline or highlight some of the key points related to, let's say, the state of the reaction to the issue, um, maybe both from the scholarship community, from the international donor community, but also from the nation uh, states yeah, that, that make uh, make up the region, how would you evaluate this? Uh... Yeah, that's a great question, Rashid. Thank you. Uh, well, I would maybe start with a simple ranking. Mm -hmm. I would say that uh, international organizations have been most vocal in Central Asia. And I, th I should say that, well, they've, been, they've done a lot of work. And uh, I think many stakeholders should be grateful to them. Uh, so this, uh, I wouldn't maybe name them, but I mean, of course, it's a whole range of different actors, like uh, all the UN agencies, uh, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank. I think they've been quite active in terms of raising the agenda. 
uh then the second i think the second most important player here uh well i would say it's the mixture of uh maybe civil society ngos and also the government which have been also quite attentive i would say especially recently to the call for urgent action uh, to do something to at least start um, putting together different policies, strategies, and uh, also put them into the official policies. While scholars, I would say, come as number three, scholars still uh, catching up, they're still slow to change. And for example, we also know that climate change poses many security risks for the region. And we know that the security scholarship on Central Asia has been probably the most prominent since the early 90s. But even there, you don't you don't see any uh, scholars who would actually try to look at the interface between climate change and security issues. It's still uh, probably you know the process is quite slow. Uh, partly maybe it again. I mean, it's difficult to say uh, where this all starts. This uh, lack of attention to this issue. Maybe this all starts from the lack of funding, or maybe it starts from the fact that the scholars who work on Central Asia uh, are not really trained. They don't have um, uh, background and um, experience in this area. That's why they, they try just to stay in their own field of research. Uh, or maybe it's both. Um, it's really difficult to say, uh, but uh, at least what I see now is that, of course, with with this product and also if you look at the number of different events, you you'd now observe some increasing interest. Uh, but uh, I would just add another thing is that uh, as for the scholarship, I should say that we actually tried to look at all the existing uh, Central Asia Studies platforms. It's the uh, Central Eurasia Studies Society, says in the US. It's the ESCAS in Europe. It's also some, you know, uh, individual country type of uh, associations like the Italian Association for Central Asia Studies, um, the French one, and many others. And we just tried to look at uh, whether they had any events on this topic uh, over the last 20 years. And I should say that, uh, well, the, the results we found were quite surprising. There were only two presentations on climate change at uh, the CES events over the last 30 years. Well, uh, I, I think as for ESCAS, there were no events or, or like no panels, no sessions or pay individual papers on this topic. And um, this is why we decided to organize a panel last year on climate change in Central Asia, where we presented our, our art article. So hopefully at least starting this you know, discourse that at least this an area can bring so many risks and can potentially uh, change you know, the economic, social environment in Central Asia. As much so I think that, well, we really have to um, find a way to start this discourse and try to involve more scholars, especially when it comes to interdisciplinary research. Um, where Absolutely. Yeah. No, we have been trying to focus on the topic as well, and we had a couple of podcasts already on uh, uh, topics of climate change more broadly in Central Asia, in Tajikistan in particular. And here and there, there are some. Um, there is some knowledge produced. I, I want to just highlight the great work of uh, Asel Murzakulova, who publishes with the University of Central Asia. She recently published a brief on climate change concerns in Central Asia's public discourse. Again, a very important piece. Yeah, even though as a, let's say, a commoner, I would, I'm really sorry to, to also to hear that the community is not that interested in learning about such disturbing issues happening just next door. Uh, like we also learned from the podcast in the podcast with Hudo Nazar talking about the climate change in Tajikistan and that the local community doesn't really talk much 
about the possible shortage of water that can even get worse in the near future. Absolutely. And uh, thank you, for Rashid, for bringing uh, to my attention the fact that, well, there are more scholars working in this area. And it's great. Once you, you feel like you're not uh, knowing everyone who works in this area, this is probably a sign that <laughs> things are improving, that there's always someone whom you don't know, which is a nice. sign of uh, some changes uh, hopefully happening. Uh, and you're absolutely right, uh, Ileana, in the sense that, um, uh, well, there are many specific issues related to climate change. And as you said, water shortages, but there are also this issue of eco-migration, also the increasing uh, aridity, desertification that may also put, you know, another pressure on uh, some uh, rural communities who might migrate to the urban areas, you know, also maybe creating some uh, quite a, a misbalance and also putting additional pressure on urban areas. Um, so there are many things which are interconnected. And uh, I would say that there's so little understanding of uh, of the impact itself. Um, mm -hmm. So we don't really know how things would um, would change based on the you know these climatic impacts and the changing climate. So I think the first thing that before we start talking about solutions, we should really look into uh, <laughs> the state of the problem, mm -hmm. uh, trying to understand how things would develop in certain areas, how they would uh, change and what would be possible negative consequences. Um, before, before we rush into the solutions, you know, that's I think that's the main thing to try to diagnose uh, correctly the, uh, the the problem and uh, in all different areas. Sounds like Thanks. we need a manifesto urging, uh, you know, research and immediate funding of a multifaceted approach to to the topic of climate change in Central Asia. Oh, yeah, I was <laughs> I was just wondering if that's uh, the, that's exactly the moment for us to talk about the research on energy transition in Central Asia that already exists. And yes, yeah, Roman, we know that you are the person behind the systematic literature review on the topic in the book on climate change. And perhaps you could tell us uh, what are the key research trends in the energy research in Central Asia so far? This question about energy transition is important. Uh, Central Asia has been known for decades being a hub for the ex uh, exports of hydrocarbons like uh, oil and gas to many different markets. And it's a time, of course, now for Central Asia to reconsider its position, um, which is, of course, difficult to do. Uh, when it comes to the scholarship community, I would say it has been more active on energy transition uh, mm -hmm. than uh, the community working on climate change. Of course, both are interconnected. But probably because there has been uh, so much focus on energy in general in Central Asia, I think that, that this means that uh, there have been some scholars who were uh, able to change the focus and now also to look at the issues that relate to renewable energy um, and also the role that Central Asia can play both uh, for some of the neighboring markets, whether it can be a supplier of different types of renewable energy, whether it can use renewable energy for domestic consumption uh, at a high level, and also uh, whether to what extent Central Asia can be an important player uh, within the global supply chains that relate to uh, clean energy transition. Uh, and as for your question about our results, I should say that, um, well, the scholars have been uh, clearly showing that, uh, well, it seems that the governments have a real uh, and serious interest to promote renewable energy, at least based on the, um, well, policy documents and also strategies. Uh, for example, Kazakhstan announced its carbon neutrality 
2020. Uzbekistan then followed the suit in 2021, uh, also announced that they would um, try to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. And these are quite ambitious goals, uh, which also uh, quite similar to the ones announced by big countries like China, uh, while many of the European nations. So at least from the, uh, I would say, the, the, the policy side and also from the uh, legal side, you see that, uh, well, governments are really tried to, and push hard to, to adopt new measures, new regulations and improve regulatory frameworks in this area. But then you have a major hurdle, uh, which is the limited capacity and also resources on the part of the Central Asian governments and also economies and societies to finance this energy transition. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, that's one of the main findings from our uh, study. Raman, you've mentioned uh, the role of neighbors, and I would like to go through through a couple of them, but let's start with China. Is is China, in this case, a partner in the energy transition, or, uh, and if so, you know, a straightforward one, or maybe a more complicated one? Well, that's a good question. Uh, this is an uh, area where I've been working recently quite a lot. I'm just trying to understand the impact and uh, role of China. I should say that... <clears throat> Um, well, the role is quite difficult to to say well whether it's constructive or not really constructive. Um, just let's look at some facts and then maybe try to decide for ourselves what we think about it. But um, over the last ten years, China has invested quite a lot in the energy infrastructure in Central Asia, and based on the numbers that we have, uh, we can say that uh, more than ninety five percent of investment. Uh, has been in uh, oil and gas sectors. So it's the uh, infrastructure that relate to fossil fuels. Uh, And then less than 5% has been um, invested into um, renewable energy projects or um, like say broader clean energy uh, projects uh, in the region. So in that sense, China has been one of the sources that would support the existing uh, status of uh, Central Asian countries being uh, main exporters of uh, like oil and gas. Uh, at the same time, uh, China has been also quite active recently in terms of uh, finding uh, some niche markets in the region uh, and trying to also invest in renewable energy. Uh, and also, I think when it comes to a particular area of cooperation, such as the exports of uh, critical materials, materials which are needed for the production of uh, solar panels, wind farm, wind turbines, and so on, and critical materials like uh, lithium, cobalt, copper, uh, zinc, and many others. So this is where Central Asia has been an almost like a hotspot hotspot for 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 China. Uh, so China has been uh, very active in terms of opening new mines and then expanding the existing production to satisfy some of its uh, needs for the production of new technologies. And we know that China is now one of the global leaders in terms of the production of solar panels, uh, also wind turbines and other technologies for which the country needs a lot of uh, critical materials input. And this is where I think uh, they can partner, I mean, Central Asia and China, and this is already happening. But the other question is, that I don't see that uh, there's much of a technology transfer to to Central Asia so that this could create additional employment, uh, maybe also 
try to uh, you know create some additional value chains uh, along the extraction and production of critical materials. So far, it has been mainly the um, well, the extraction and the um, direct uh, um, imports by China. And how about another neighbor, Russia, and especially how is Russia's war against Ukraine affecting the energy transition in Central Asia, and including, of course, imports and exports? Uh, uh, well, since this, this question, I would maybe also then add the European Union uh, to this triangle. <laughs> yes, please. Uh -huh. Because their uh, ties are quite interconnected. So when after the war started, um, the role of for example kazakhstan uh, as an uh, as an uh, well as an uh, exporter of of uh, hydrocarbons has actually increased so uh, for for example for europe kazakhstan has become uh, this alternative market to satisfy some of the uh, existing demand for oil and gas for example um well this has been the case for italy i think also for france and several other countries which actually stated that we need to, in order to reduce our dependence on the Russian uh, um, energy, we have to find a way. And then Kazakhstan was seen as a quite an attractive market. Mm -hmm. And so this also comes at the same time when you also have EU officials, EU delegations that come to Central Asia and then they try to uh, motivate, I would say, Central Asian governments to decarbonize the economies, to find a way to cut the production of fossil fuels, oil and gas in particular. Um, so, and this is this uh, to kind of very parallel and uh, where uh, to, to trends which go in the opposite directions. So, for example, uh, resources in the region are seen as very important now, especially in light of the war in Ukraine as an uh, alternative. But at the same time, you also have this increasing, uh, I would say not pressure, but increasing <clears throat> attention from many European countries and delegations that Central Asia needs to decarbonize. And I think this is quite a different, difficult matter to reconcile. Um, what we also know is that um, the, the war in Ukraine showed that Kazakhstan is actually um, quite dependent on its, uh, um, on its export routes that go where the Caucasus and Europe. While we know that for many years there have been a lot of uh, talks that uh, Kazakhstan is expanding its, uh, for example, um, resources and its uh, imports of resources to China. This has been not the case. So uh, the, the actual, the war showed that uh, more than 90% of uh, the energy infrastructure in Kazakhstan was oriented towards European markets. Um, and so in that sense, at some point last year, I think Kazakhstan experienced some trouble shipping its oil via the uh, Caspian Sea because some of the um I think some of the uh, ports in Russian uh, in Russia have been uh, closed for some time and it means that Kazakhstan couldn't use them for shipping its uh, oil products and this has become quite an obstacle for for the country to you know to find some alternative uh, routes for its uh, oil resources now there's of course the discussion that Kazakhstan needs to diversify its alternative uh, um, pipelines to many Asian markets, but I think this is quite a um, well time-consuming process. Uh, before it's implemented, I think many years will 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 pass. Uh, Roman, since we talk about European Union, uh, the EU does seek to support Central Asia through the Global uh, Gateway Initiative on Energy, Water, and Climate. 
if you were to give advice now that we have transitioned more to the solutions part, uh, what would you want the European Union to uh, highlight in its broader program? Right. That's a, that's a very good question. Uh, well, I think there are two sides of the answer to this one. The first one is that, um, and I started this already, that <clears throat> so the EU keeps on um, advising Central Asia that the region needs to decarbonize. And I know that uh, there are so many programs, especially on capacity building in this area. And I think this those programs have been quite instrumental. Uh, they really help to 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 you know to obtain new knowledge and skills on the part of the local authorities in Central Asia. And this is something that is quite unique. Uh, none of the other partners, I mean, uh, not China, not Russia or the US would do as much capacity building. So this is an area where I think the EU is really uh, the leader. Uh, at the same time, we also know that many of the European oil and gas companies, they remain very active in the region. And they keep on investing uh, millions and sometimes billions of uh, euro into the existing infrastructure that supports oil and gas production. So I think uh, there should be some way, some kind of a dialogue between Brussels, EU authorities, and also European companies on the need to um, to help Central Asia to, to decarbonize. Um, and I don't think that there's such dialogue at the moment. Uh, it seems that there's no interaction between the authorities and also the European oil companies, which means that, well, it's really difficult to then um, to reconcile different strands of EU policies in the region. Uh, while I think there's something should be done in order also to make it more coherent and legitimate for Central Asian uh, authorities that there is like one coherent policy from the European Union that, uh, for example, uh, oil and gas companies would have a plan to withdraw from the regional markets by say by in in ten years time, and that for example the EU would continue investing in uh, capacity building but also providing some more support. And the second thing uh, concerning the global gateway program and also in general, what the EU could do is that um, I think that the EU also has a quite a comparative advantage in terms of in terms of uh, <clears throat> clean energy startups. I think that many European countries managed to establish a necessary infrastructure for uh, for the you know for the emergence of uh, clean energy startups and small enterprises that can really provide necessary solutions uh, in terms of uh, renewable energy, in terms of uh, say electric cars or uh, electric supply that is built on renewable energy. So I think that helping Central Asia to also to learn from this experience. Would be quite helpful um, and again as i said before uh, none of the big so to say neighbors are helping in terms of technology transfer or in terms of you know really building this clean energy infrastructure and i don't think this this would cost a lot to the european union uh, the first thing is to start by just identifying possible areas for cooperation for you know creating the same type of environment and infrastructure for um for, for clean energy startups. So I think that's the area to go. Of course, if uh, the funding allows, uh, then also why not to to increase the investment into the new renewable energy projects? So far, it has been the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development mm -hmm. that has provided most investment into some of the uh, solar, uh, solar energy projects in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. 
And I think that, uh, well, there's still more uh, potential for many other European players to come in and start investing in this area. And perhaps one last question, at least from my side. Well, the fact that uh, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, indeed are more known as uh, gas and oil exporters, and Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan are known as hydropower-rich countries. Does this division uh, play a positive role in the broader energy transition in, in the region? Uh, well, I think that <clears throat> Central Asia has the potential to 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 change its uh, status from being, um, you know, this uh, hub for fossil fuels to becoming like an important player in the global energy transition. And the fact that the countries are quite different is actually even uh, to the benefit of the region, because <clears throat> we know that um, well, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan have this uh, uh, big history of hydropower development. Now, by adding more uh, so-called uh, small-scale hydropower, uh, which makes a uh, limited in, uh, impact on the environment compared to the large dams. I think it could be just a way to, to show that uh, uh, these two countries, for example, can build on their experience with hydropower and then can be among those pioneers who would then develop different types of uh, uh, clean energy solutions in the hydropower sector. Uh, also for other countries to learn from them. I think it's also quite useful. Um, as for other countries like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, we also see that uh, they being quite similar in terms of the endowment with solar energy, wind energy. I think they can be competing with each other, but in a healthy way so that mm -hmm. this competition could uh, you know, lead to some more uh, investors looking into the region, uh, for example, it now makes sense for if you invest in Kazakhstan with more competition, uh, some investors can think, okay, well, why not to invest in Uzbekistan at the same time? It's the same region, it's a close proximity, the same logistics uh, market. So that could be even <clears throat> to the advantage of the region to really play um, and use its differences in terms of the endowment with different energy resources. Excellent. I'm glad that we can, uh, you know, land in our conversation on some kind of positive note uh, with some prospects uh, to look out for. Uh, Raman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for these uh, in-depth insights. And once again, to our listeners, to the variety of communities that hopefully tune in to our chat in the yurt, uh, let's collectively produce more knowledge. Let's uh, invest more resources into this important topic. Thank you very much, Rashid Elena. I'll be happy to be your guest again, should you find it relevant and interesting. <laughs> Yeah. And thank to our guys. listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you and hear you later next time on Chat in the Yurt. Bye.